the grain. Looking at big ideas through the lens of small communities. A podcast where arts, culture, and the human experience intersect. Tackling serious topics through fun perspectives. Seeking that grain of truth. Welcome back to The Grain. I'm your host, Jody Srutek. And I'm your other host, Darren McLeod. And we're here today to talk with Ms. Wilhelmina Mathias, a woman who has some interesting stories to tell. Let's go, family. We are still talking about the lovely, lovely 29203. That's a zip code in Columbia, South Carolina, a place I call home. All right, so we have another person on the line who calls that place home. Miss Wilhelmina, would you introduce yourself, please? Okay, my name is Wilhelmina Mathias, and I've been a member of 29203 for over 40 years. So where in 29203, the, uh, in, to, if we had to tell the rest of the world, where in 29203 uh, have you resided for over 40 years? Okay, it started when, um, well, it was over 40, so I'm not going to say how much more than 40 it is, but um, just know that um, it is way over 40. My great-grandmother lived in 29203, and those where she resided, which is on Craven uh, the second half of Craven, which is close. Oh, that's why you were talking Set. about Craven. Right, right, right. So th- that's um, where she resided. And um, my aunts who lived in New York purchased this house for my great-grandmother so that she could become a homeowner. Mm-hmm. And every summer they would come down and visit for two weeks with my great-grandmother. So I can remember as a little girl coming to her house on Craven Street um, and where she lived was where teachers lived on that strip of Craven, teachers, principals, and everybody knew everybody. Reverend Wilson, who used to be the pastor of uh, of uh, St. John Baptist Church on Beltline and Fair. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember. Yeah, and then Ma Wilson, who was his wife, who taught at Benedict for years. And so there, there were pillars in the community. So the whole strip was teachers, and they were all homeowners. So with okay. That, so can I stop you for just a second? Sure. Tell our audience why you call it because Craven. There's something interesting about Craven Strip Street. You got me saying strip. Why you call it the strip? Tell us what, why you call it the strip. Well, I can remember as a little girl walking with my great-grandmother to the bus stop because she did not drive. They walked everywhere they went. Mm-hmm. So we would go across the, the railroad track on Standish, passing the funeral home. And as you cross the railroad track, all of that was white. Mm-hmm. That's when the whole um, complexion of this community changed. It was all white. But they all knew my great-grandmother. So I can remember her saying, hello, so-and-so-and-so, hello, so-and-so-and-so, as we would walk to the bus stop. Mm-hmm. And so I looked at my great-grandmother. I said, boy, you know everybody, but they, they were a community. So everybody knew everybody, and we would stand there and catch the bus. She knew the bus driver, who was at that time white. I did not see any African-Americans driving, uh, driving the bus. 
So we would catch the bus there, and then we would come back, and then we would cross the railroad track into the black area of um, Ashley. I mean, Standish. I'm sorry, Standish Street. And then we would go on to Craven Street. Right, and what you're telling us is Craven Street was a street that was literally separated by railroad tracks, right? Exactly, exactly. So one side of the track was black. Exactly. And the other side of the track was white. Exactly. At least in the beginning. In the beginning, exactly. Right, right, so, right. So as I grew up and attended school, my mother purchased a home on North Main Street, mm -hmm. which we could walk from Craven Street to North Main Street. So when my aunts would come from New York, and they were all domestics, but they were very thrifty and they saved. Mm -hmm. They would walk from Craven Street to come over and see my parents on North Main Street. Okay, so can I ask you a question? Sure. Where'd you go to elementary school? I went to um, Carver Elementary. Wow, you went to Carver? Carver. For now, for the people who don't know 29203, Carver is in a whole other zip code. Exactly, exactly. That's across town. That's right. So my father knew some people who knew some people. Ah, he, was, he had it like that, huh? Well, not really. He was a cab driver, so he knew, he knew everybody, a little bit of everybody, and he thought Carver would give me the educational experience that I needed. But I left Carver and went to private school, which was at that time, St. Martin de Porres, which was a Catholic. Oh, okay. Yeah. So a yeah. little bit of history for St. For, uh, once again, for our grain family, St. Martin de Porres was the uh, local black Catholic school, black private school. Black private school, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Adjacent, right across the street, actually, from... Uh, um, from Allen uh, University and Benedict, Allen Co and Benedict College, right? Exactly. Both of exactly. them, right? That's right. Uh, okay, cool. Now, where'd you go to high school? Now, that's interesting because I went to Johnson for one year. So, C.A. Johnson is where Denny, Dennis, and I went, which, but, um, which was uh, the black high school in Columbia. Exactly. Because only two, Booker Washington and C.A. Right. Johnson. Right. But when they had busing, then I had to go to Eau Claire High School. Oh, so you finished at Eau Claire. I finished at Eau Claire. I was either the second or third class that they had uh, integration um, in terms of, uh, you know, being bused. And I was not happy with that. <laughs> so you went from Johnson, when you went to Eau Claire, what, was, uh, what, was the what were the demographics there then? Like what? Percentage to percentage. Well, it wasn't that many blacks uh, because I think that there was a fear that there would be a riot because of integration and because of, um, you know, some folks really didn't want us there and we, they let us know that. Um, and I have some interesting pictures that I can share with you. Um, but it was not, it was not pleasant um, for us because as, as blacks, at least for, not for me, um, some folks welcomed us, but we didn't feel, I didn't feel welcome as a whole. So Darian, after I listened to this the first time, uh, mm -hmm. I went on a bit of a mission to try to figure out when Wilhelmina graduated from high school, 
because I remember, you know, <laughs> the last time, the last time we talked with Dennis, you and Dennis talked about your experience going to high school and which school was the black school and which school was the white school. And I know how old you are. And I know that Wilhelmina is a generation older than you. And so for me, that really rattled my timeline. Can you give us some background about kind of time periods and when this unfolded? Because it seemed odd to me that these schools were still segregated almost in a 30-year span. Yeah, that's the thing about, like say, these stories on the grain. They're much more complex, much more faceted, much more uh, colored than you would think. Nationally, okay, so Dennis and I started high school in the late 70s. And that's when Wilhelmina really starts talking about segregation or desegregation um, high school. So she starts, and she's about a generation before us. Dennis and I started high school in the late 70s. And the high school she went to, Eau Claire High School, was still struggling with race, was still struggling with race. I think officially, I think the University of South Carolina integrates 1969, 1970. Uh, uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, we know it's from the 50s. Mm -hmm. But the real impact of integration uh, is still, or, or segregation, excuse me, it echoes through decades after that. So, Wilhelmina goes to Eau Claire High School, must have been around the early 70s, late 60s, that can't be right. But whenever she goes, I'll leave that up to you, Detective Shrutek. <laughs> but whenever she goes, um, I go, like you say, I'm about a generation behind her, and those things are still being wrestled with. The school is still being threatened with uh, shutdowns or lockdowns. We didn't call them that then because of... Uh, race race riots, potential race riots. The school that I went to, C.A. Johnson, which was the black school, it, now today is still the black school. That's Columbia. what I was going to ask you. Yeah, Are they still, still referred to as the black school and the white yeah. school today? Yeah, the black because it was historically black and it's the only ones left and white kids didn't integrate. You know, white kids didn't... Um, to be told, I, I was bust from one side of town Wilhelmina's High School, Eau Claire, was almost within walking distance of my home, but I was bused to the other side of town to go to the all-black school. Hmm. So there's a lot, there's so many stories there to unpack why zones were changed, why things were zoned the way they were, what that meant, what integration meant on the real ground level. Uh, Wilhelmina talks about what that meant for her grandmother in her neighborhood. I talk about what that meant for mine and Dennis's family in our neighborhoods. Like I said, there's a lot of things to unpack. We uh, talk, there's this mythology about the South and about race and all these politics that come with it. And a lot of it is just, if not wrong, overly simplistic, overly simplistic. That that's a very good point, because I think, you know, for me growing up, I grew up in upstate New York and I've lived in South Carolina for almost 20 years now. So, I mean, I'm not new here. Mm -hmm. I, I know the ropes. You know, I know what I thought was was some history here in South Carolina. But like in my mind, 
you know, growing up and the history that I was taught, schools were segregated under Jim Crow. And then, you know, in the mid fifties, schools were integrated and it was, Mm -hmm. it was messy. Um, but it happened. And so when I hear people who went to school in the sixties and seventies still talk, and even today now referring to this school as the black school. And so I was really interested in that. And I did, I was looking through past yearbooks, Eau Claire High School yearbooks. They have them at the Richland County Library. You can pull them up online. And I'm like looking through to see if I can find Wilhelmina. Um, And I was looking in the mid 60s, but it sounds like she's graduating from high school within a few years of the time that your family moves into your home Mm -hmm. on Mm -hmm. uh, Middleton Street. So, Mm -hmm is interesting uh, maybe about a 20 year difference but yeah, probably a little bit I, less I, I think so well i mean so, it's very discreet about her age and that's fine <laughs> <laughs> i i respect that <laughs> uh, but um, the thing i think the thing you hit upon jody is um our perception of history and histories yeah because they're always parallel stories running along so when you read it um as a student when you read it in the textbooks Brown versus the Board of Education. Was that 1954, I think? Yes. I'm, I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, that's right, 1954. Okay, 1954. I mean, this happened and this happened and this happened. And it seems very direct and clipped. Also, this happened. And these kids weren't hearing it. And that's not actually how it played out on the ground. You know, in 1980, what, 182? 1982, I was a freshman at Fort Valley State College, which is a small college in South Georgia. And the local high school, Peach Peach County High School, they still had a segregated prom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember when I moved here in this would have been the early 2000s. I moved here to South Carolina in 2003. And I remember reading about a high school not far from where I live. So probably in between you and I. Uh, it was either in Hampton or Jasper or Colleton County that still had a segregated prom. Right. And they had, when integration happened and they were busing students in to integrate the high schools, a lot of the families pulled the white students out. And so they started segregation academies, were basically private schools where the students uh, just, they just changed school and then they were left with only black students as well. So it's just interesting the ways that that happened. And all of that, right, compared to what we're going to hear next, mm-hmm. a little teaser for our audience, um, Wilhelmina is going to tell us about her experience growing up and how her mother was received in her neighborhood mm-hmm. when she uh, first moved into her neighborhood. So it's a really like it's it's very complex and nuanced and you cannot paint this picture with one brush for sure. Yeah, think about to your point, lots of color, lots of shades, lots of stories, but that's what we're here for at the grain. So let's give uh Wilhelmina a listen. Saxon Holmes, Drew Park was the black part. Right. Carver Lion was the black school. Carver, oh, excuse me, I keep saying Carver Lion. Carver Lion, I'm sorry, is, is what it is now. 
Right, right. But Carver was, so you went from extremely Black experience. You're like, like my family was. You went from extremely Black experience to extremely non-Black. If we want to talk about just pure numbers, just pure demographics. So you were like, Dennis was teasing me. You were like, you, you guys were the pioneers. That's right. That's right. So when you moved into your neighborhood, uh, which was predominantly white when you first moved in, how long did it stay predominantly white? It stayed, I, you know, and I meant to ask my mother that, who is 97 years old. Oh, wow. I remember it staying that way for a long time because she was the only ink spot on North Main Street. And believe it or not, the neighbors loved her and they looked out for her and they mm -hmm. protected her because, you know, at that time, you didn't know if you're going to have some problems in terms of moving into this white area. You didn't know if when you came back, your house would still be there or what condition it would be in. I mean, it was just, it was, uh, it was uh, trying times back then. So uh, we had, uh, on one side, she had a neighbor who, whose son was a doctor and he, he, he um, lived in the home prior to going to medical school. And then on the other side, they were educators. And then they um, made sure that they protected my mother and pretty much said, you know, leave her, don't bother her. You know, she's okay. Wow. So, That's an interesting story. So like most of the time we think of integration, we think of like, in my family story, uh, we we triggered white flight. Right. So our neighborhood became black. Our neighborhood, which was white, became black in a fairly, like in two or three years, it became almost all black. Yeah, no, that didn't happen. And that not only happen. that, but you said, like, like one of the things we talk about on the grain all the time is community. Right. Your mother formed community with her white neighbors. Right. To the right. point where they were protective. They knew, recognized, and appreciated the, let's be honest, just the danger you guys could right. be in exactly. and protected you. Right. And my mother was somewhat, kind of, uh, she was somewhat militant. So it wasn't, uh -huh. like she was a subservient person. She was somewhat militant, uh, but, but she was respected. And um, the neighbors would always do nice things for us, you know, just different things like bring us something nice to eat or make dinner. I mean, they were very nice to my mother and to, uh, to us. So I never had any problems. Uh, but I, growing up, I don't remember any blacks moving in because they didn't want they didn't want that. Wow. So even though you were in, and if it was your home, it didn't just feel right. like home, it was right. home, they weren't necessarily inviting or in inviting to other people, other Black people coming exactly. in. Exactly, exactly. See, this is, this is one of the things, to me, this talks about is the complexity of race and racial politics. And uh, everybody thinks, you know, it's always... Uh, the cross burning on your yard right. or black people protesting, but it is all of that, but they're, they're individual friendships, they're unusual alliances. Right. There's like you said, what made, why, why did your aunts even buy a home in a white neighborhood? Um, you, well, my auntie was on Craven. This part was black and across the railroad tracks was white. Oh, okay. Okay. Right. Got you. 
Gotcha. And so, and so they wanted my great grandmother, it was four sisters, to have a nice home and in a nice community. Mm-hmm. And so they purchased this home for her. So my mother purchased a home in the College Place area, but was North Main. And so we would walk back and forth. All right, Jody. So um, as promised, here's yet another interesting story about 29203. What about Wilhelmina's mom, huh? What about yeah. that story? Yeah. Is that not it, compelling? It is. And it really, I'll, I'll tell you, the first time I heard it, I immediately thought to myself, like, okay, so were these people just very progressive for the time? Like, did she end up like being lucky and just having neighbors that had very, very modern ideas about, you know, race and civil rights and, and being very welcoming or were they more, um, protective of their community and just wanting to keep others out. And it took me, I had to listen to it more than once before I remembered her saying like, okay, they were happy to have her, but no one else. But no one else. Think about that. So yeah, at first you go like, oh, that was so nice. But her her neighborhood didn't integrate. They, her mother got in, her mother established her uh relationships with the neighbors and everything. But for the most part, that neighbor stayed unchanged, according to Wilhelmina, for a very long time. So just even that, the complexity of that, like, well, like, you know, a lot of it, I, I, that's one of the dynamics I've noticed about race myself. A lot of times, numbers. Like, uh, I'll see white people not be threatened by one person's presence, one black person, a woman or minority's presence. But if it's two or three or four, all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, we need to talk, you know, when it's just you, they're like, oh, come on in, they invite you in. But when you come back with friends, it's like, hey, we need to talk about this, you know? So yeah, this is really interesting. And Wilhelmina's, um, I like how she talked about her mom. Her mom was not a subservient person. Because the first image, I think, the popular image would be, oh, she must have been this really nice little, little quiet Black woman who, you know, white people didn't feel the threat, didn't feel threatened around. And Wilhelmina's like, no, she wasn't a subservient person at all. She was militant even. You yeah. Know? So and she was again, a teacher. I thought mm-hmm. the, the, the comment about her being a teacher because the woman next door was a teacher and the guy on the other side was a doctor. So interesting who they were. And I almost wonder too, if like, when I think about it, when you talk about your neighborhood and how your family moving in, and this was of course many years later. Uh, so we're different time frame even into the future, but your family moving in triggered white flight and your neighborhood, the demographics changed very rapidly within a four to five year span. This neighborhood didn't. You almost wonder if there was like one family on the block that's just the family and if they were like okay so we'll accept this person into the fold uh but you know they sort of set the tone even you don't know i would love to talk to her mother Um, i would love to know what i'd like to i'd like to to your point i would like to hear the conversations it's impossible to do but i would like to hear the conversations at that time, how they determined, like you said, was it one family just like told everybody, hey, be cool, she's cool, or did they have multiple meetings about this black woman, this black family moving moving into the neighborhood? Was there pushback? Did everyone just immediately go, it's okay, it's cool? You know, they like, 
once again, stories upon stories upon stories upon stories. Mm -hmm. Well, and then too, when you go back, she talks about her dad. Well, mm. you know, her dad decided- The cab driver was, who knew everybody. Right. It was the right thing to send her to Carver. Mm -hmm. And he knew some people. And, you know, so it's very interesting. Really so hold on for a second, Jody. Put a pin in that. Think about this. What she's saying, I don't want to put words in Wilhelmina's mouth, but let me tell you what's going on. At the time she moves in, Arden Elementary School, the school that I would eventually go to, is very white. And Carver, which is, like I said, on the other side of town, in a whole different zip code, is very black. And Wilhelmina says, my father thought the best educational experience for me was at Carver. So there are all kinds of decisions being made, all kinds of moves being made, all kinds of things happening. At the same time, you're sending your child to Carver. At the same time, you live in this white neighborhood that's accepting of you, at least to a degree, it sounds like, but not accepting of other people. It's really interesting, right? Yeah, so much there, really. Um, I just can't wait to hear what else she has to tell us. Okay, let's go. What are your impressions of College Place right now? Well, let's talk about Craven and the fact that most of the people who own these homes have died mm. and they passed the house on to a relative who did not feel the need to stay in the home and rent out. They decided to rent, you know, put it up for rental um, purposes. And so the, 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 that ownership to really and, and take care of the home is not there because they don't own it. What do you think College Place is going to be like 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Uh, I would like to think that it's going to be a better community because of the um, renovations that they're making uh, coming down North Main with the streetlights and the paving and uh, more communities now are, are gathering together to have cleanups and really take care of their communities. So I'd like to think that it's going to be a better area for everyone. Mm -hmm. But it's, uh, the area is, um, it's, it's just, it's not all black and it's not all white. It's a blended community. We have, uh, you know, various races here and, um, it's it's a beautiful area. Let's talk about gentrification specifically. What does that mean to you when someone says gentrification? And what does that mean, if anything, to you about College Place? Well, it's it's almost like an infiltration into into the community. Mm -hmm. I, it doesn't to me. The name does not sound very positive. Mm -hmm. It's not you know it doesn't give off a positive vibe to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, just to hear the name. Um, and it sounds uh, almost condescending. Mm. Expand, talk more about that. Talk more about but I, that. And I'm not sure why I feel that way. Mm -hmm. But it's almost like a, a disguise um, of, of something happening. And it's, it's a disguise. It's not, let's say someone wants to buy a house in this area. And they don't, they, they, it, it's not, about really helping the area, but it's about, you know, it's, it's, it's not about us uh, helping our area. It's really about more financial gain. Right. So mm -hmm. to speak. What do you do about gentrification? What do you do? What do you, 
or do you do or do you do anything? I mean, you're the leader of a neighborhood, of a community group. So just that says you're a person of action. You're a person who thinks, you know, you, you're organizing community cleanups. And it sounds like you're still engaged with your college and you're definitely engaged in the neighborhood. So I'm just, I don't know what. what. What are your thoughts? Do you have thoughts? Now I think about gentrification. I think about on... Um, um, Elmwood Park over there when all of that was black. Do you remember yeah. that? It was mm-hmm. they were renters. Most of the African Americans were renters. So Very- hold on, let let's set the stage for people who are not from Columbia. Okay, who don't know what you're talking about. Okay, so what will I mean is talk about is a part of Columbia that 30, 40 years ago was all black. Exactly. That is more to um, even more downtown than two two nine two zero three. It's almost in the heart of downtown. Heart of the city, right? Heart of the city, right? So I'm sorry. Keep on going. You were saying, well, I think what you were trying to say was now not some back then. Those were all black homes, all black home, and now not not so much. Now that 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 neighborhood is definitely experienced gentrification. Exactly. And so when you say gentrification, I think about that, how all of those uh, African-Americans had to find a place to live because they were renting and because white America decided that they wanted, they they owned the house, they were renting to uh, African-Americans, but they decided they wanted to come in and beautify the area and remove those folks from there. Right. It's gentrification. So it's not a positive thing. I think that it could be because, you know, they they could have worked with some African-Americans to help them to purchase some of those homes, but that did not happen. So I always love listening to Wilhelmina share her insight. One of the things that really stuck with me that I heard her say was that she described gentrification as a disguise, right? Mm. She used that word Mm -hmm. that it was a disguise because it, it's bettering the community. It's improving the community, but it's not done for the people who actually live there. It's done in an effort in a disguise for financial gain. Right. Uh, It's community improvement for who? You know, one of the running jokes in the black community is um, by the time you start seeing those things, you start seeing uh, the street lights being improved and the roads being improved and the schools being improved and the curbs being improved and all these things being improved. The joke's on you. Here come the white people. You're about bye bye. Goodbye. So, yeah, gentrification is something I think we're still wrestling with. I don't think anybody begrudges. The United States is a capitalist society. We all accept that. But unfettered capitalism, unchecked capitalism, where you don't have regard for the people who've made the space a viable space. I mean, those families have been there forever. And now they get just displaced, basically, because somebody else has more money than they do. So, Mm -hmm. you know, what does that say about us? What are we really trying to talk about? One of the things we talk about uh, the Constitution and 
and uh, our rights, our civil rights. And I think one of the um, core rights that we don't, one of the core values that we don't talk about is fairness. Is that yeah. fair? Yeah. Yeah, it's you an know. interesting thing. I think sometimes too, when you look at gentrification, a lot of the time what will be appealing to outsiders when they're looking at a community and they're wanting to come in to a community is one, it is a financial thing, right? So depressed property values, but mm -hmm. also, you know, a culture that already exists in a community. So, you know, you see an area that has a vibrant culture of its own, and it's almost like it's ripe for the picking. And I have, I told you this earlier, but I've even heard gentrification compared to colonialism in that regard, mm -hmm. you know, where I, I say it's, um, it's colonialism. Oh, my mouth's not working. It's colonialism without the bullets. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. That's... But you know, at the same time, it's an interesting thing because, uh, gentrification could be a very positive word or maybe at least more neutral I want to participate in that. I want to move my family back into the neighborhood that I grew up in. And the things that attract me are the culture and uh, the depressed uh, economics, really. It makes it, a, makes it affordable. It's someplace I can move. I really want to move there, period. So I have that added thing. I care about the community. Like I said, I'm, a, I'm already an active participant in that community. But at the same time, the same agents of change that someone who's not uh, takes advantage of to move in there, I plan on hoping those things work to my advantage. So it's, once again, it's complicated. <laughs> it's true. I mean, you know, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's like improvements, but improvements for who, you know? For whom? Uh, and so... You know, you see an area, um, you don't want resources that the folks live there moving out just for the sake of, you know, resources for outsiders to enjoy. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, your laundromat getting replaced with a trendy bistro or, you know, the the corner store getting replaced with a yoga studio. Right. Like, who who is that really serving? Yes, those are nice things. Um, and everybody wants to live in a community that's thriving and and businesses want to are attracted and want to do business there. But people still need an affordable place to live. So right. balancing or or perhaps even you've been trying to get a loan to upgrade. Maybe you've been wanting to put in your own juice bar or whatever, someone within the community and not been able to get a loan and then seeing someone from outside get along extremely easily. And, but, and so there's so many factors. It's kind of, you know, really at the core of what it is to be America, what it is to be American. There's so many factors there. You know, it's not, nobody begrudges the yoga studio. You might want to go there, but there is resentment when you've been trying to get that spot for 10 years to open a barbershop. And you couldn't get the loans and you couldn't whatever. And, you know, you weren't good for it. Though, you know, you really are. And then here comes a yoga studio, you know? So, yeah, there's a lot of, once again, 
It's complicated. Yeah. Well, I think that we probably could go on and on and on about gentrification and you know what, Jody? and this neighborhood. I think we will, but not on this episode. <laughs> so great yeah, family, just sit tight. Now. <laughs> we got plenty to talk about. We got some fun stuff coming. It's, we got plenty of stuff to talk about. And we're going to revisit this because, I mean, these are big. I think what we're alluding to are these are big ideas. These are big talks. And like I said, that's what we're here for. Once again, thank you for listening to The Grain. That's all for now. Goodbye. Bye, guys. The Grain Podcast is brought to you through a grant from the Knight Foundation in partnership with Indie Grits Labs and the lovely people of 29203. Thanks to our audio engineer, Isabel Alvarado, and our hosts, Darren McLeod and Jody Srutek. And don't forget to subscribe to The Grain for more great episodes.